You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Heard through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Heard Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Heard Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Heard. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Nick. Hello, hello. And our special guest, the owner of Mr. B's Gastro Pub in Royal Oak, Johnny Prep. How are you? Great. How are you, Johnny? I'm doing wonderful. Thank Th- you. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. All right. So I want to start with something that might seem a little bit off topic, but it's very much on topic for what's happening with us at the bakery right now. Uh, the Royal Wedding. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, I don't Prince. What the guy's name is? I forgot already. Mar- Meghan Markle and yep. Prince, Prince Harry. 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 Yeah, uh, are getting married this Saturday, mm-hmm. and at like five a.m. Yeah, four a.m. our time. That's when um, it starts, right? Yeah, the procession. Four, well, I don't. I don't know. I don't know exactly if there's like a pre-show or something like that. So well, like what's red carpet? I don't know. If uh, Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon are doing a show on HBO Go, and I think they're doing live commentary for it for the wedding. Yeah. Okay. Which sounds amazing. Like, they're both, like, faking British accents. Really? It's going to be great. That sounds pretty cool. So if, if I wake up that early, which is odds are slim, that's what I'll be watching. Yeah. What else would you watch at that early in the morning? on a? Well, so my wife is of English descent. So we watched The Last Wedding. And um, we were dating then, back in that day. So... So you stayed up and watched her with her. Uh, we didn't stay up. We woke up early. Yeah. And I think we went to work after that, too. Why do I feel like it was not on a Saturday? Maybe not. That could be crazy. So to give you an idea of just how crazy it is for us at, at Accurades right now, yesterday was the Scottish bakery. The Scottish bakery, yeah, yeah. But we do British stuff. We're making a lemon and elderflower cake right now, which is the cake that will be served um, on Saturday. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, which is a shift from they were originally supposed to do a banana fruit cake because that's um, British uh, favorite. Well, I don't know. It's like the, the favorite of the the couple. Okay, and um, they I think they got talked out of it because banana fruit cake is. Sounds kind of terrible. Odd. Yeah, for cake in general. Yeah. Do, do they do a groom's cake or is it just the one cake? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. The groom's so, cake could be like top secret too. Yeah. So it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so they're doing lemon elderflower, elderflower Saint Germain, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're making a cake with uh, lemon elderflower cream. Nice. You know, mm-hmm. using Saint Germain, and then we're we're lemon elderflower buttercream. Um, do you have any left? Can people buy them? So here's the thing. Um, Maybe this podcast will get up on Friday. So think about Friday. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, people can buy them, yes. Okay. Um, we've sold out of them the last we, – we started selling them on Friday. We've okay. sold out every day since we started. Um, we're shipping uh, – right now, as of right now, we've uh, had about a 15 dozen ordered that we're shipping across the U.S. Are these um, like 8-inch, 10-inch? No, they're 4-ounce jars that we're shipping. Jars. So it, individual okay. servings and nice. then um, in store, it's like a, a cupcake, essentially okay. a layered cupcake. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the craziness that's happening around this whole thing is is something that we were just completely unprepared for. Um, and I say that in the best possible way because, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and um, it, it's people are having parties like you were just saying. Um, we're going to be on channel two tomorrow. Is that uh, what the what Megan need the tea for? Yeah. Okay. And then we'll be on channel four on Thursday. Nice. Um, there, there's a lot of hoopla around this whole thing. Um, I, I, you know, when people get married that I don't know, I don't seem to get that excited about it. But people are just absolutely thrilled this is happening. Interesting. And I, I mean, obviously, there it's a big deal. Yeah. You know, because they're part of the royal lineage. I I feel like I heard that Prince that there was talk of abdication too with. The queen going to Charles 
Maybe that was just a total speculation article. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just making cakes. <laughs> so well, cakes. I mean, if, if there Stay was a new... Sweet spot. And <laughs> the reason why I bring it up is because if, if a new king is knighted, there hasn't been a king in, you know, what, 60-so years? So, I mean, oh, that's true. That would be another cake-a-palooza for you. <laughs> yeah. So you should start stockpiling cake <laughs> ingredients. Yes. Another lemon elderflower cake, you think? No. It's going to be something new. <laughs> It's going to be with, so. with like mutton or something in it. I don't know. What do we English people eat? Uh, mutton? Yeah, like a mutton cake. No, that's, that'd be haggis. Oh. The, the Scottish. God, we're not getting Ooh. better. Ooh. <laughs> haggis is good. Ooh. Come on. Come on. In a cake? <laughs> not in a cake. No, 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 not in a cake. No. The first and only time I've had haggis was with you. It's when we did line. that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's borderline. <laughs> best. <laughs> that, um, uh, one, of the party, cool, yeah. one of the cool things that we, uh, so mm. uh, one of the, like, Cool hokey types of thing. We have the uh, Royal Family Funko dolls now. Those little big headed plastic Shut the front door. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So we have for um, sale or just like avail like there. No, Megan ordered uh, one of each. Okay. So we'll have them on set with us on, on the TV shows. Nice. Uh, and then uh, the the queen comes with her corgi, which is pretty incredible. That's great. So yeah. Um, but you know it's been crazy. Uh, you know if anyone's listening that's been in and dealt with our craziness, please forgive us for. I came in insane. for Christmas and I got no special treatment. You didn't because no one gets special <laughs> treatment at Christmas. Sorry. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> All right, Johnny, uh, let's get back. Let's talk about Mr. B's a little bit. You know, we missed the boat because we had like English trifle on special two weeks ago. Nice. I mean, you know, we just timed this out properly. We're going to have to make it again oh, tomorrow. If, if you do a lemon elderflower trifle, you, know? you, you got it. What about some spotted dick? Yep, spotted dick. Yep. <laughs> I mean, that would be clutch. We, we, had, we, had, we have some of that being delivered to us tomorrow. <laughs> Do you relate in the yeah. can? Uh, yeah, it's a uh, no, it's a, like a, a microwavable pudding type of thing. Okay, yeah. I thought so, it was in a can for some reason. Th- there right. is some in a can too. Okay. The Heinz makes one in a can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so spotted dick uh, is something we'll have in stock tomorrow. Nice. Um, yeah. And then the big hubbub was that oh, one of the one of the big press organizations didn't know that Yorkshire pudding was not a dessert. Oh. Jonathan Kung shared an uh, uh, article about it, oh. and I—that's sad. I want to say it was BBC, but that doesn't make any sense. No, it had to be no someone local. I think it was BBC reporting it that it was like New York Times or Washington Post or something like that. Oh, yeah, sure. They thought it was good. a dessert, right? Obviously, someone did zero research. Yeah, negative zero. Wow, that's upsetting. So, anyway, Mr. Yeah. Beast, Mr. Beast. So you know, we did a uh, uh, last week. We did a um, Titanic dinner. Yes. We did a t- – which was British too because uh, the Titanic was part of the royal, you know, cruise. Uh, RMS. RMS, yeah. right. And, uh, you know, we made a uh, chartreuse jelly, mm. which was really interesting. We served it with some poached pears. Well, because I had asked you about Aspects, which is like yeah. one of the craziest night – your early fancy food nonsense thing – it was, you know, it was it was interesting to see the menu. Mm-hmm. I mean, the food from back then, you know, and it was very Escoffier. It was, uh, but really, I mean, they had a really cool vegetarian dish. I mean, a ni- you know, vegetarian dish from 1915. Who would have thunk? You know what I mean? But it was like a uh, basically a stuffed eggplant, but they used marrow squash instead of egg or not eggplants, uh, zucchini. But they used something similar, but it's not exactly a zucchini. It's called a marrow squash. And uh, mm-hmm. it was a hit. It was delicious. It was like some sautéed mushrooms and squash and onions and basil and tomato paste, Parmesan cheese, pinko. It's kind of Italian, to be honest with you. Yeah. But uh, a great vegetarian dish. In fact, it's so good. I think we're going to, you know, put it on as a vegetarian dish on the menu. <laughs> now, I thought I thought Mr. Beast is a sports bar. This is where the bros come to get burgers and French fries and the cheapest beer imaginable. Well, Why are you having a, a Titanic meal? Well, you know, Mr. Bees is like 35 years old and it's kind of like a fine wine. It just kind of, you know, evolves. And uh, I bought it, you know, four years ago. And, and you know, the roots of Mr. Bees was really pre-sports bar. It was really a pool hall. Okay. You know, I mean, sports bars didn't really come into play until big screen TVs really came into play. And then all of a sudden you had sports bars. But truthfully, you know, if if you look at, you know, big screen TVs, everybody has them now. So nobody needs to go to a bar. Right. To see a sporting event anymore. And, you know, we get a great crowd for the big games, but, you know, people just aren't going out every night to watch the Red Wings or the Tigers and that stuff anymore. You have to really kind of evolve past it. And, uh, you know, so when I bought the uh, restaurant four years ago, um, you know, coming, you know, from more of a classically trained chef background, I mean, I was more interested in, you know, putting out great food. You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you talk about classic food in Escoffee. When I went to uh, culinary school at Schoolcraft, it's a very formal school. I mean, it's very 
Escoffier. You know, it's all very uh, American uh, Culinary Federation. They want you to get your, uh, you know, certifications and, you know, go on a path to becoming a certified master chef. So, you know, actually, when you when you look at uh, uh, an Escoffier cookbook, you know, um, he cooked for the rich. I mean, he really did. I mean, half those recipes have foie gras, caviar, all the stuff in them, you know. And and after going through that, I I and I and I love high end food. I mean, I love doing creative small plates, and I love all that. But I really thought to myself, I said, you know, I don't necessarily think that culinarily, you know, I really want to dedicate myself just to cooking with these really expensive products for really rich people, mm-hmm. because it really kind of you know narrows the scope of what you do. And one of the initial appeals to uh, you know buying Mister B's for me was the opportunity to really take, you know, uh, casual pub-style food, uh, make it from scratch, and, you know, just try to take the things we make and, and take them to the highest level of quality we can. And, you know, it's been an endeavor now that I've been working on for a few years, and, and I think we've accomplished an awful lot with that. Um, and now uh, we're kind of going past that, and we're uh, – we're working on more creative menus. We're doing a lot of uh, specialty dinners like this Titanic dinner where we had like five course dinners. And, and, uh, and of course, we're opening our speakeasy this summer in June. And, and uh, um, we're going to have some really nice small plates down there. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, Mr. B's has really evolved. I mean, we've actually taken some TVs out and put some art up. <laughs> and, and just to clarify, you bought a Mr. B. You didn't buy all of them. Well, that's correct. There were several Mr. B's um, owned by a group of guys uh, that were very successful, and um, they retired, basically. Yeah. They owned, I So think, what year was this? This was four years ago? Uh, this was four years ago. Okay. Yeah. So uh, uh, it was the last, actually the last Mr. B's to sell, and they're all completely independent. Yep. We really have- So you kept the name, whereas I, others are like Detroit Bar- like you know, the one in Troy is Detroit Bar. I th- yeah, most of them have changed their names. I think there's three or four that have kept the name, mm-hmm. and you know it's kind of a double edged sword, you know, because as we try to differentiate ourselves culinarily, you know, people have like 35 years of the slop burger and and seasoned fries, which is a great burger and great fries, but you know they don't expect to come in and have a you know a lobster bisque pot pie, a chartreuse jelly, you know, a, well, a chartreuse <laughs> jelly. Uh, no, they don't expect to have yeah. you know some of the. I mean, you know. Cajun food. We do chicken mock shoe, you know, and we do, I mean, we do very authentic stuff. We make everything from scratch and they don't expect it. Yeah. And it takes, you know, takes quite a few dinners and promotions and TV spots and podcasts and all that great stuff just to get people to understand, hey, you know, come try what we're doing because it's really a whole different ball game. We'll wait for the herd bump. Because this is going to convince a good <laughs> four people. So thrilled. <laughs> uh, so, so, you're the second owner of Mr. B's yep. in, this, in this location. Yeah. Um, how slowly did you have to roll out new menu items? Like how mm. – so this slot burger, right? So I don't know if it's still on the menu. Oh, yeah, it is. It is. It is. Okay. So it's probably never going anywhere or – Well, the slot burger is there, but it's 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 different. just it's just a different burger. Uh-huh. You know, I mean the slot burger when I bought the place was a pre-formed patty that they bought. Um, and they bought, uh, you know, bread from commercial bakeries and, you know, the burger patties honestly were frozen Okay. and they would put them, you know, on the char grill or the flat top and they would, um, you know, use a, a spatula and they would, you know, if you wanted one done, they just squeezed on them a little bit, you know what I mean? And they got them well done a little bit faster and, and, um, you know, I mean, we approach burgers very, very classically. I mean, we buy certified Angus beef and whole muscles. We grind it ourselves. We have a separate protein cooler. We keep all our meat at 32 degrees. We have the grinder itself inside the cooler. We grind the meat inside the cooler. We put very little pressure on those burgers to keep them from getting tough. Uh, we don't press on them when we cook them. You know, we buy uh, all our buns and bread from Crispelli's, which uses all natural starters. It's a very, very natural brioche bun. And they're a local um, bakery. And they're a local Lo- bakery yep. right down the street. We right. have a great relationship with them. They had a line um, out the door on Mother's Day, the jerks. <laughs> all I wanted were rolls. <laughs> I'm telling you, we got our dessert late from Crispelli's on Mother's Day. I was not happy about that. <laughs> you know? They're doing great. Good they for are them. doing yeah. great. Mother's Day was a great day. We yep. had we had a few hundred uh, family, people in there. That's great. Mother's Day, it was really a nice day, you know, and uh, um, yeah, that's all good. 
So this is what's blown me out of the water. So again, I grew up with this local Mr. B's that was, you know, again, casual food that wasn't, you know, over the top. It was very kind of like frozen-y type stuff. Yeah. And so when I popped in and we met, um, I heard about some of the stuff you're doing, especially in the bar program with the fresh grinding and all that stuff. And I was shocked. I think I was texting you the whole time of like, what is happening to Mr. B's? Like, you are really trying to put a culinary mark on this place. Well, you know, I mean – we're, I mean, we're kind of gutsy and, you know, this is going to be really gutsy for me to say this, but uh, we want to win a James Beard Award. That's that's guts. Okay. Now, there are actually a lot of James Beard Awards. Okay. All right. And there's one called the American Classic. Okay. And you have to be in, uh, in business 10 years to qualify. Uh, they prefer a casual restaurant and you have to uh, have played an important role in the community. Okay. And you have to have quality food. And I think that Mr. B's uh, fits a lot of those characteristics. So even though James Beard Awards, you know, normally you hear about them for the cookbooks or the top young chefs in America or the five-star restaurants, it's a large foundation and they have a lot of different awards. Mm -hmm. But it gives us an opportunity to have a focus. You know, it gives our staff a focus, you know, and it gives us a, a it's a good, it's a good tool, a good goal for us. But um, yeah, I mean, why not? You know, why not have a bodacious goal? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm going to probably be in this for five more years. And before I get out, I'd really like to hit a home run. So why not? Hmm. Yeah, that, that American Classic Award was won by uh, El Amir in Dearborn. Okay. One, so I think there's 10 a year that, they're, that, that, yeah. that are given. It's a really incredible award. Um, and, and I uh, wish you luck trying to get it. That's well, thank pretty you. awesome. Yeah, thank it's you. a great goal. It's thank something. you. I mean, it might take us a few years. I mean, I'm not saying what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. <laughs> you know, but, so, but, but, you know. Do you gonna... apply for it? Do you, like a, yeah, like, do you make like a, like a case for it kind of thing? Yeah, you do apply for it. Okay. And that, it, the applications come in October, and uh, we'll probably try our first application this year. Nice. And uh, um, I do look at it as a, a kind of a um, – you know, something that might be two to three years in the horizon because I'm sure it's a very, very, you know, strenuous award to achieve. But uh, um, and we're a big place, you know, I mean, changing Mr. B's. I mean, we can seat really we could seat 500 people if we that's, wanted that's, to, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's in the current Oplete space. That's not counting Johnny's and the arcade. No, that is. That's, that count, is. that's okay, counting everything. And actually, okay. I've been reducing the seating on it. OK. So, so wait, Johnny's is the speakeasy? Johnny's is a speakeasy. We're going to okay. be opening uh, not too not far from now, hopefully in June. Okay, so that and that is found beneath the main level of Mr. B's right now. Yes, it's really going to be pretty isolated from Mr. B's um, because it's a speakeasy, uh -huh. you know. And a speakeasy, by definition, is a hidden mm -hmm. bar. You know, I mean, it's a prohibition era uh, hidden bar, so that you could go drink when drinking was illegal and the police wouldn't bust your butt. You know. And uh, so we're creating uh, an entrance right now that we have – are going through the approval process with the city, which is important. Um, but we're creating an entrance that's going to look like you're going down into a kitchen and you're going to actually walk into a cooler door. Behind that cooler door is going to be the sexy bar with small plates food. And um, I'm really, really excited about it. You know, I mean, I've been really engaged in this craft cocktail movement for a few years now, and I really enjoy it. And I think that um, uh, Royal Oak doesn't have anything like that. I don't think that this is tough this to get a good town. cocktail in Royal Oak. It is. And, you know, I'm just that kind of passionate guy. And, you know, I mean, if we're going to have cocktails, we're just going to have rocking cocktails. I mean, we're going to, we're just going to keep shooting for the sky and, and, you know, we're going to have good stuff. And, but we're going to have small plates. We're going to do souffles down there, which I'm very excited about because I've been turned on to some incredible souffles when my travels to Europe. And, you know, you don't really get them much in the United States, especially savory souffles. And they're an incredible mouth sensation, you know, the lightness of a good souffle and, and, um, Oh, we're going to do a bunch of creative stuff down there, and it's going to be like eight or nine, eight or nine dishes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to be a pub menu, so we're going to have a chance to really, really focus um, and do some creative stuff. And we're going to have great cocktails. You know, we're going to uh, we're going to do vermouth flights. Very so cool. you're going to be able to do like Manhattan flights or martini flights, and you're going to be able to choose different vermouths. You got one of my so, favorite so vermouths you, on the table right now. You know, it, yep. it, it's a very good vermouth. And, and there's a number of them. And, you know, the thing about vermouth that I find is that there's a real significant difference in flavor from vermouth to vermouth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Manhattan drinker. Um, and I find that there's a lot more difference in the vermouth variation than in a bourbon variation. Okay. So, okay. you know, why not try different vermouths 
instead of just different bourbons. Or bitters. Or bitters. Bitters too. And bitters too. Yeah. And actually some of like Punta Mas, which is a very popular spicy uh, spice thing, it's bitter. Yeah. It's, it's got a bitterness mm-hmm. to it. You know, I mean, it's uh, – um, I find with Punta Mas, you don't want to overjuice the bitters in the drink, you know, whereas a Dolan is much less bitter and you can juice up the bitters a little bit. Yeah. So, Dubonnet, you could do um, the Queen's drink. <laughs> there you go. It all there comes he, back. It all comes back. It all comes back to the back. queen. It's all about the queen. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of cocktails, I mean, you brought you brought a, a bar set with you. Essentially, um, is there something you want to make? Well, you know, I thought I might make one, maybe even two drinks for you here. Um, all right. Well, I like how you brought some easy flavors. You got scotch and you got mezcal, so you're really <laughs> aiming for the fences. <laughs> well, you know, why not? <laughs> <You> <laughs> <know>? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, we've got uh, a Robert Burns, which is actually a drink that they served on the Titanic. Nice. So we uh, we brought that along. That was uh, invented, I believe, at the Waldorf Astoria many years ago. So is, is that the same Robert Burns, that, the, the national poet of Scotland? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, um, very good. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's like you own a Scottish bakery. Really Scottish bakery, yeah. <laughs> I mean, January is a big month for us. We saw a lot of haggis you, in January, so there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is really just a uh, uh, a Scotch and vermouth drink with a little splash of uh, absinthe on top and a little bit of orange bitters. You nice. Know? So it's almost a it's almost a uh, um, enhanced Rob Roy, I guess you would call mm-hmm. it. Maybe. Yep. You know what I mean? So that's a stirred drink, and then I also brought a drink that we're working on for the new bar menu. Which is kind of a lift, um, which is a, a, a mezcal-based drink, which has got a little bit of Benedictine, a little Anchorios in it, a little bit of cream, and you shake it up. And then uh, um, and actually, it's got a little bit of simple syrup in it, too. But I, I, And then you finish it off with soda hmm. to give it the lift. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not – like a gin fizz kind of. You know, of, that's what yeah, I said. Yeah. Uh, that's what I said to Mitch. I said, oh, it's almost like a Ramos gin fizz. Because <laughs> it does create a nice little head. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, uh, but not quite. Not quite. You don't, you go, you don't go through the, the shaking gyrations. You don't dry, then wet it. You know, it's just a little bit technically different. It's a little actually easier to, to get your head on it. You know, there's no eggs in it. So it's, if you ever uh, need a good arm workout, the Ramos gin fizz is like, I think it's three minutes or more you're supposed to shake that thing. Oh, yeah. And, um, I mean, the payoff is having this nice big fluffy drink that like comes outside of your glass, but, uh, you don't get it right. It's just kind of mush. You know, they had uh, when that gin, when that drink was first originally done, the bars would have shaker boys. Okay. And they would have like a line of shaker boys and they would like shake from one guy for a couple of minutes to the next guy for a couple of minutes for the next. And they would shake them for like 15 minutes. So I you was know? in Indiana and I was at a vintage store. And there was a cocktail, uh, an electric cocktail shaker that I bought. Really? With the thought of making the fizzes in there. That's brilliant. It's something, something's broken. So I got to take it apart and figure it out. But it <laughs> well, looks cool because it's like that 1950s yeah. industrial like cast metal. Oh, yeah. So it's neat. No, that's, that's, that, yeah. that, that's a good idea really because <laughs> you can get an arm workout. It's like a paint shaker. You just kind of stick it in there and hit on. There you go. There you go. Well, while we're chatting, can I Please? mix while we chat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Is that okay? Yeah. Do you have a preference where I go first? Why don't we start with the scotch? Let's start with the uh, All right. Mr. Burns. Uh, so, okay. So these drinks, these are going to be available um, uh, upstairs and downstairs or just downstairs? Um, well, you know, we do craft cocktails in both areas. Um, the The basement is going to be have a lot more technical okay. um, drinks. We're going to have uh, – a centrifuge down there. We're gonna. We've got a couple concept for some pretty uh, interesting technical drinks, okay. if you will. You know, um, I'm not gonna spill my guts completely on them because we're kind of developing them still. Um, whereas upstairs, we're gonna focus mainly on historically classical drinks. We'll have both downstairs, but um, our bar upstairs isn't going to be as technical because they have to be a little more diverse. I mean, there's still, you know, we've got uh, draft beer upstairs and, and, and bottled beer and people that want to walk up and play Keno and drink a Bud Light. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that's not going to be, we're not going to have draft beer downstairs. You know, we're going to have some uh, eclectic, uh, mm. high quality mm-hmm. beers. We won't have draft pop. We'll have bottled pop. And, nice. you know, so it's going to be, it's going to be different. Early Mr. Breeze has three bars. You know, we have one in the game room, which we consider kind of our nightclub bar. 
you know, so if you want, uh, with the VIP, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you want a Long Island iced tea or, you know, you want a lemon drop shot. Yeah. You just, you know, cruise over there. If you want an aviation or an El Presidente, you walk over to the main bar. You can get one at either one, but really that's the sure. expertise. I've actually separated my staffs so that I, and, and the, I've taken them and I, and I work pretty hard on this education program for my staff. And, you know, the ones on the, on the uh, nightclub bar have a little bit lower bar to pass in terms of their mixology education, you know, and the ones on the, but main they probably bar, have volume. They probably got to work on. Oh, they can put out drinks. Yeah. They can put out drinks. It's a, uh, it's a skill set. <laughs> you know? uh, the other thing I liked on the kind of craft side is when that's where you took me when I popped in. Mm-hmm. And um, you're making your own syrups, your own orgeats. You got infusions going. Um, there's a lot of stuff you're doing by hand that um, definitely kind of a, a you know a lot of bars aren't doing. You know, definitely the high end craft bars are absolutely doing that. So that showed me that you're really trying to take this program up. A notch. Well, you know, you have to find people with passion. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I've been fortunate enough to do that. You know, and I think that it's important that as an owner, I also have a uh, uh, um, a commitment, you know, a major commitment to it. Um, but I've you know I've got some pretty talented guys, and they have, uh, um, yeah, they've gone out on their own, you know, and made some of these things and brought them into work, and you know, we've kind of developed a pretty good bonding as a team, and uh, all the you know, and some of it is so good. You know that falernum that we make, right? It's it's a sauce. I mean, I I I've I've we did a beer dinner, and I made a I took a, a, a peanut butter stout and I reduced it and made a syrup out of it, and then made a cheesecake out of it, and then we put falernum over it as a sauce. But I mean, it's got so much flavor in it; it's just absolutely crazy, absolutely crazy. The uh, um, homemade grenadine. You know, with uh, uh, pomegranates and orange flower blossom water, that's, I mean, you, you don't, you'll never have another grenadine again once you have that. I mean, it's, you know, real grenadine that you buy in the store really tastes like cherry cough syrup. Mm-hmm. It really does. Yep. You know, you taste the other stuff and it's just, it's just, it's rocking good. You know, it really is. Are you using uh, pomegranate molasses in there? Um, no, actually, he's actually taking the pomegranate. Doing fresh pomegranate? Yeah, yeah. he's doing f- fresh pomegranates nice. with it, you know. The, the he's, recipe, spanking, I, he's spanking the pomegranate. You ever spank a pomegranate? <laughs> I, I, I know where you're going with this. <laughs> no, it's true. Yep. Have to, you ever? To get people, the, people, to get the, yeah. people fight those little seeds to get them out. Just turn them upside down with a spoon, spank them a few times, seeds just pop right out. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple <laughs> good videos online. There's actually – there's one way to slice it open where you kind of pull off the top and then you slice down each of the seams and it all pops right open. Like, I mean, pomegranates are like mysterious, but you find the ways to do it and yeah. they pop right out. No, none of it is as easy as it looks. I've tried. Have you tried it? Oh yeah, none so of I, it's as easy as it I've looks. I've done the slapping. The <laughs> slapping does help. Yeah. Um, but I remember the first time I ate a pomegranate was in college, and I was eating it over my keyboard, not knowing what I was getting into, <laughs> and my keyboard was covered in juice after that. <laughs> I have a love hate relationship with pomegranates. <laughs> oh, they're good. They're very decorative. They're a little crunch to them. You know. So you're talking. You're talking about educating. You're educating the, the staff, right? Yeah. How do you con- have them convey that education to the customer who mm-hmm. may not be familiar with these uh, with these items that these new items that you're offering? Well, you know, I think that's one of the the magical keys to finding the right bartending staff. You know, I mean, it's like uh, you went through engineering school, right? And you know, you get a lot of people that are technically good engineers, but to find engineers that can talk. That have personality that will engage the passion of what they're doing with the people across the table from them. It's a little bit of a rare breed, you know. And um, you know we're fortunate because we've we've got a couple of bartenders that really are so passionate. Not only just about making their drinks, but they're also passionate about the uh, the history, you know, and sharing that history with the uh, customers. And all of a sudden, people get really interested mm-hmm. in what they're doing. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, when we ever remember the main on the uh, cocktail menu, you know? So that was the battle cry of the Americans in the Spanish-American War. I mean, who would, who would know that? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it's interesting. And um, I don't know. You know, as I put this education process in place, I almost sometimes say to myself, 
maybe I should put an incredible education pr- process in place. Find people with passion and personality and teach them how to make the drinks rather than t- take people that know how to make the drinks and try to teach them passion and personality sure. because that's <laughs> that's just a tad bit uh, – more challenging at times. Right. But you know, I mean, there's, it's such a big thing in Detroit right now. There's so many, uh, craft cocktail bars opening up and it's so popular. There's a bit of a shortage, um, of for, good talent. for good talent. Yeah. So you really have to, as an owner, I think, strategize how am I going to develop this talent? And, uh, um, uh, you know, I've kind of made my decision that I'm going to really emphasize education. You know, the cool thing about um, Johnny's is that we're only going to be open Wednesday through Saturday. So from 7 to 1 o'clock in the morning. So it actually gives me like Monday and Tuesday where I could set up Johnny's as a mixology school. And I'm seriously considering doing that. I'm seriously considering not necessarily doing like a curriculum program, but flying in experts from around the country to do seminars and, and bringing them together to do that. Um, because it'll, you know, when you talk to people that are really good at what they do, it motivates you. Right. You know what I mean? Like we went to this bar smarts program. I took my staff out to Pittsburgh for their, we went through the whole bar smarts education program online. And then they have an advanced mixology class in Pittsburgh or they do them around the country once every quarter. Uh-huh. So then you go there and you, and these six guys up there, I mean, they're, they're world class. You know, they've written books and they're historians. A couple more master sommeliers, which is just a mind blowing thing in itself to me. And, uh, you know, you can't help but be passionate when you talk to people at that level. You know, I think it's, I think it's, uh, uh, um, something that could become infectious, you know, and that's what I really want to do. I want to create kind of a fun, infectious, environment and build a team of people that are really passionate um because i'm i'm that guy you know i mean i'm very passionate i'm very passionate about my food i'm very passionate about pretty much anything i consume you know whether it's wine beer cocktails and sometimes for me as a person it's almost difficult because a lot of times you work with people that aren't that passionate Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and it's like how can't you be passionate about drinks i mean really you're a bartender and it's like, how can't you be passionate about cocktails? I mean, do you know how lucky you are to actually be working in a field where you can drink something and feel good about it? I mean, be in the injection molding industry and try getting excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I mean, really. I mean, it's, you're fortunate to be in an environment where you can be social and you can have fun things and you can taste them and you can even catch a little buzz off them. I mean, it's all, you know, a really – Really kind of fun environment to be in and why not be super passionate? The history of cocktails is incredibly amazing. Mm-hmm. The history of alcohol is incredibly amazing. You know, the relationship to Detroit and the prohibition and bringing the whiskey over from Canada and how we built the Canadian whiskey industry. I mean, to me, that's all incredibly fascinating stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, I mean, to have a great cocktail, I mean, you know, it's like eating a great meal. And I think part of that is, and this is kind of a modern thing that I think we've seen in the past 10 years, at least in the U.S., is that there wasn't a lot of excitement, I think, for um, service. You know, there, waitressing and waitering was kind of seen as like the job you did before the next job. Um, bartending, to some extent, was that too. Bartending, I feel, had a little more glitz and glamour to it, especially after like, you know, cocktail and movies like that. But it, there wasn't that focus on the history and the background and the knowledge. Not like a chef. Whereas I feel like chefs, definitely, you knew that that was a specialized skill. You had to um, either learn it hands-on or go to school and do all that. Whereas I feel like waitressing and waiting and bartending to some extent, you'd pick it up on the fly. And I think we lost that um, that job, that um, uh, well, career. Career. Yeah, That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. There, There's no sense, at least locally, um, career servers aren't – it's not a thing around here. Um, well, and, and it can be. Um, and there are there were – I mean there were some at uh, – we went to the Lark – before they closed, the Italian place, some there, Roma Cafe. Before uh, they closed, yeah, um, you get some professional wait staff. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, sure. and not to say they don't exist around here, and, there, and there's plenty that s- still exist. You know, you might have some at Mr. B's. I, I, I don't know, um, but but this is something where, uh, yeah, it's always a stepping stone job, right? So these people, you know, the so people, why would they? Why would they go then put the time into learning the background and the history and all that when they know that this is a stopgap? For something else. Well, you know, I mean, it's really so short-sighted in so many ways. But you know, it's kind of it's kind of endemic to the whole the whole you know economic 
understanding in our country. If you don't have a college degree, you're nothing anymore. I mean, the whole focus is on college degrees, college degrees, college degrees. And I work with all these people, and let's be honest, not everybody's meant to sit in a class and take notes. Exactly. You know, but they're really talented, smart people that are good with their hands and they're creative. And it's like, you know, we should, we shouldn't make everybody's goal in this world to get a college degree. I mean, vocation is a wonderful thing. I mean, it's a skill set. And in Europe, I mean, they have more of that mentality. You know, it's a profession. Try you welding. Know. Anyone, go pick up a, a welding, a MIG welder, and try to put a good bead down, and you'll find out how much skill there is in these jobs. You're speaking another language to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, exactly, right? Yeah. I mean, like plumbing, electrician, all that stuff. That stuff is tough. It's not just the things you see when you hire a handyman. Like, but, there's some badass stuff in the background that you got to know so to do those jobs. But so is building a cocktail. 100%. No, well, so is saying. building a cocktail. So is yeah. waiting on a table. Yeah. Yeah. So that's is providing service, you know? But we don't think about that as a career. And we need no. to change that. Right. And, and you know, it's kind of silly because really bartenders make more money than most college graduates I know. Sure. Honestly, they make – it's a great skill set to have. You know, you want to make, you know, three, four, five hundred bucks on a weekend? Easy? Yeah. You know? I mean, I know very few college graduates unless they have a professional degree that come out of school. I'm, I mean, not even close mm-hmm. to what my bartenders make. Yeah. Not even close. So here's a question about the bartenders and, and, and wages, right? So you ha- you're you going to have two separate bars. You had this seemingly high-volume bar upstairs, 9,000 square feet, and a yep. smaller, more focused bar downstairs. Yep. How do you keep the – is there going to be a wage – do you foresee a wage disparity happening between the two bartenders? Oh, interesting. I, I balance it out. Okay. I very much engage in my bar. I mean, I – I, I get this because it's a very, very important issue. It's an important issue across the board as an employer. If you want to build a quality staff, and you got to understand, you know, I mean, Mr. B's does have a history of being a sports bar. So their, their, their view of, you know, that lifer, you know, career wasn't that, you know what I mean? Of, your, um, of this, of the employees, you mean? Right. Okay. You know, but I realize that if I want to achieve the goals I want to achieve, if, if you want to win a James Beard Award, you're not going to do that with summer college graduates just mm-hmm. picking up a job. You know what I mean? But the bartenders in particular, um, I actually – I guarantee their tip-outs sometimes. I will compensate the uh, crap bartenders to make sure they're making as much money as the nightclub bartenders. I mean I go out of my way to make sure that they're making good money. And I, I think that is the tough thing that <coughs> when you talk to like Sandy and Dave K, like, <clears throat> yeah, it might seem like you're making a lot of money at a craft bar because the drinks are more expensive. But you're not doing the volume. And whereas you can go to like, um, uh, like what's the, like some of the Irish places that are just kicking out drinks. Yeah. Things like that. Like you're churning out drinks and they're inexpensive drinks, but you're doing volume. So you're getting tipped like mad. So that's, that's the other tough thing with craft bars is it's hard to be profitable unless your drinks are just like stupid expensive. Oh no. I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I know people that have worked at some of the, you know, like iconic craft Mm -hmm, bars. mm -hmm. They don't make half the money. So they're always leaving, you know, and um, now I have to tell you the high volume bars, it's hard work. I mean, it is hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, on a Saturday night when we're three, four, five deep yep. on, on the nightclub bar and people are just dying for their drinks and they're not even that terribly polite to you. Um, you know, you have to respect what those people are doing. Sure. Uh, but they do, they do get, they do get compensated very well for, mm-hmm. for what they do. But if you want to, if you want to keep a staff, you have to make sure that they make a living. Right. You know, and I'm very conscious of that. And, um, uh, I, I, I focus on that. You know, I mean, I think that if you make sure that people are making a living, if you educate them, uh, you know, put an education place in process so that you're building their own, you know, I try to emphasize it to people, you know, you're building your own skill sets, you're building your own marketability. I mean, if Mr. B's closes tomorrow, you can go somewhere now and you mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, you're a bar smarts graduate. Yeah. You know, you, you're craft, you can do craft cocktails, you know, you can do all these things and, you know, try to make them understand that, you know, it's part of, building themselves up and their own marketability. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you really have to have that perspective because I, I just think that in order to really build a solid team, uh, you have to think a little bit differently than a lot of the shot in the beer bars do right now. Yep. And it's, 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 it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, I mean, just to get craft cocktails, oh, I don't want to work at Mr. B's. <laughs> yeah. Really well, you know. I guarantee some tips. <laughs> really, no, yeah, you, should, you should really kind of check out how much we make. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's worth it to at least pop in and have a drink. Because oh, honestly, when we talked, I was just like, I don't want to go to Mr. Beast. And then I said, and I'm so glad I did because it did absolutely change my my uh, my perception. 
Oh, well, you got to admit, some of those cocktails are just rock stars. I agree. I yeah. mean, I mean, they're they're as good as any place in this. Not just in Royal Oak, but I'll put them up against Detroit. I was waiting for a blue Hawaiian and like sour mix and. No, I mean you know, <laughs> fishbowl, <laughs> fishbowl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you get the history story with it too. <laughs> you know, it was great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, you know, it, it was it, when I was out in Pittsburgh, we listened to these guys talk about the history. You know, of the cocktail and how, you know, the 19th or the 20th century was the demise of the cocktail, especially the first half. You know, I mean, once prohibition hit, you know, we really went through some tough times because you had, you know, prohibition, then you had the Depression, then you had World War II, the Korean War. I mean, you know, mass production culture. Teeny culture. Let's make a teeny out of everything. the, The mass production culture was killer. Yep. I mean, it was killer to the food industry. 100%. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean but the food industry I mean, just recovered food. from that, I feel like. Well, the food industry led. You know, the food industry led. And, and you know, as they kind of told the story, Julia Child a lot of it started like with like Alice yeah. Waters yeah. out in California yeah. when she started working with, you know, natural uh, ingredients and, and, you know, farm to table type of stuff. And a lot of the great chefs kind of like started going in that direction and they kind of led. Mm-hmm. And um, and now you can see that the bars are and, and the craft cocktails are, are following. Because, you know, I mean, the craft cocktails in the United States prior to Prohibition were world class. We were the gold standard. We invented I mean, the cocktail. Were, you know, we were. Yeah. There were American bars all over Paris and London. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And, you know, truthfully, we've never been there with food. I mean, we've never had the respect of the French um, in a culinary regard. We're getting there. In fact, it's interesting on how we're getting there because, you know, in, in Europe, they have they don't have the schools we have. They have apprenticeship programs. Mm-hmm. And some of the top chefs in Europe send their own kids to the United States to go to culinary school because they don't have those schools there. Yeah. So we're doing some smart things, yeah. you know, and and I think it's all about passion. And, and you know, I mean, we're a great, creative, competitive country. We just are. You know what I mean? And I, I, I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, there's just so much great stuff that we can do. I mean, look at what you can buy in a grocery store today that you couldn't 20 years ago. We can get food for anywhere in the world. Hummus. Hummus on every corner now. (laughs) Anywhere in the world. Our kids like sushi. Five-year-olds, they like sushi. Cappuccinos. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's crazy. (laughs) My kids like sushi more than they like cake. Isn't that crazy? That is really crazy. Haggis. It's true. Haggis. Now, right. I, I had never thrown any haggis at i got to be honest with you. I'm not sure I could do that as a parent. I think social services it's, might it's come get to me. It's basically pate, guys. It's, it's safe. Yeah, it's pate. Uh, yeah. But it's funny, though. That was the, and yeah. this is probably the thing sushi had years ago. Like, I'm not going to eat raw fish. It's raw. That's gross. <laughs> That's exactly what most people think. You know? So now there's Joe that's trying to lead the haggis charge. Haggis, yep. Yeah. Well, good luck on that. <laughs> good luck on that. You know what I mean? We, we sell, I wouldn't bet your business on we, it. We sell a lot of it. We sell probably close to a half a ton a year. Because you're like one of yeah. like three people that ship it, right? Uh, in the United – well, yeah. because – so historically, haggis is a quote-unquote banned food. Um, and it is banned – it is uh, illegal to import it from Scotland because it has lungs in it. And lungs are a banned meat. So if you're – Sheep lungs. Let's sheep, clarify. Yeah. Sheep – yeah, not human lungs. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, sheep lungs and, um, and so we make it, we've made, been making it ever since we opened in 49. And it's um, good. I, I, I'm giving you a hard time, but it's actually it's, very good. It's, it's liver, yeah. it's heart, it's rib meat, it's onions, it's suet, it's oatmeal, it's seasoning. Not, it's what it's it, not it's, helping. It's, no, I, I don't care if it is. And it's like, if you eat pate, you eat hot dogs. So haggis is, is right in line but with hot that. T- but hot dogs have like chicken lips and that's the thing that I'm craving. <laughs> <laughs> Do chickens have lips? Do chickens have lips? I, I, I did go to Do- uh, Doug's Delight for the first time. I had oh, their um, Park? Yeah, the uh, what's James the, Dragato's, uh Gundam, Gundam style, Gangnam uh, style, Gangnam style yeah. hot dog yeah. that had like peanuts and eggs yeah. and all sorts of crazy stuff on top. It was awesome. Kimchi. Haggis is safer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> all right, so we're on to cocktail number two. We are. You know, um, this is a lift. And uh, um, my mixologists, the craft bartenders, um, are kind of developing this for the basement bar right now. And I think it's a lot of fun because he's got, um, you know, he's starting with Mescal. Mm-hmm. Mescal is like, to me, I'm really excited about Mescal. You know, when I first tried Mescal a while back, it wasn't a real good Mescal. Did it have a worm in it? And, it, and, and I think it might have. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it it's actually not, might have. You know sorry, not a worm. 
It's a larva. Lar- but it's still not a good sign. No. <laughs> is, that, is that what it is? <laughs> and, uh, no, but you're actually using, you're using a great mezcal. Uh, Montalobos is um, – what's nice is it's a, it's, a, it's a good product and it's easy to find. So, well, yeah. you know, it's it's it it they're really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, they're like the Scotch of tequila. I mean, to me, you know, I mean, if you're it's a lot, I mean, very flavor forward. Well, it's, yeah. it's got the it's got you know it's got the smokiness mm-hmm. of a smoky Scotch. Yeah, and I don't. They're the only liquors I I'm familiar with that naturally come with the smokiness to them. You know what I mean? So I always tell people, you know, what I mean, drinking mezcal is a developed. It's a developed taste a little bit, just like smoky scotch. I don't think it necessarily comes natural to a lot of people. I think you got to taste it a few times before you kind of get rocking with it. But, you know, I mean, if you drink the better mezcals, they're just rock stars. Yeah. And and Joe and I have kind of gone on this quest to find a lot of mezcals. And we found ones with varying level of smoke, uh, the pachucas, the um, – there's all sorts of different varieties of just crazy things. And um, it's been fun. Like once you get the bite for mezcal, uh, it's it's great. Yeah, the, the 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 range of flavors. Um, it was in Cabo a couple months back and tasted a, a multitude of mezcals we don't get here because we don't have that many in in Michigan, do we? Still, um, maybe thirty or forty. Well, and that's that just goes back to the liquor book. I don't yeah. think it has anything to do with right. You know, um, the the, the range we have twenty of flavors. last week counted. We have like twenty. Twenty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, one of the mezcal bars I went to had fifty on the shelf. Yeah. Um, and, and they're vastly different. And some some were infused, some weren't. Like it's it's an some are aged, some aren't. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I was at uh, Tales two years ago. Tales mm-hmm. of the cocktail, and they had a mezcal room, and I had a chance to taste like 30, yeah. 30 yep. different mezcals in a room, and uh, that was really educational. They've um the last past couple of years have been great for mezcal. I really think they're coming into their own now. People are getting more used to it, and they're starting to see it more on bars. Uh, and I think that's kind of what Scotch had a number of years ago. Yeah, they're kind of saying like mezcal's the new like very flavor forward spirit. Yeah, so. And it's made from agave, which is a great, yeah. which is a great base. Any yeah. agave, whereas tequila has to be blue, blue Weber. agave. That's right. The mezcal can be any that's agave. Right. That's right. All tequilas come from mezcal, but not all mezcals are tequila. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna shake shake that, huh? You know, can I? Yeah. Can please. I do that without yep. uh, you know? Go for it. Just don't spray it everywhere. <laughs> oh, <come on>. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the second second week in a row we've had cocktail shaking. On air. It's because I've been scheduling these interviews. Yeah, it's true. It's what are we doing? Guys. <laughs> well, next week we might be a writing company. So yep. that'll be three weeks in a row. Yeah. Next week we'll have a... Are you going for that uh, Tuesday thing? Yeah. We're, we might be talking to the Attaboy guys. So. Oh, we're, I'm going to be down there. That'll be fun. Cool. Come wave. You can tell them that we're not scary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we focused a lot on... Um, we're focusing a lot on cocktails today, right? So I want to talk about food for a minute because I think... Um, I mean, you started in food. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So um, th- this, the cocktails have kind of been an evolution. So let's talk about food for a second and how you got into food and, um, and, and like your educational background in food too, because you, education is a big part of what you've been doing all, all your career, right? Well, you know, I've been involved in education um, in many different levels. I actually worked with, I had a kids program. I've taught kids how to cook nutritionally. Um, but, you know, I mean, I got into food because I was into eating. I mean, really, that's, 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 that's really the truth. No, I was an offensive <laughs> lineman in Michigan. I mean, I oh, really, you, you I mean, really I weighed 265 eat. pounds. And, okay. I mean, I, this is a true story. When I graduated from high school, I was 248 pounds. I, I, I went up to Ann Arbor. I was there for six weeks. So I lost 15 pounds in six weeks. And, I, and all of a sudden, I was an offensive lineman that weighed like 238 pounds. That is really dangerous. So my mom literally. Because you're low. Because you're low on the weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, okay, yeah. you know, offensive lineman, two thirty-eight. You, you know, you're gonna get, get beat up pretty big. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so literally, my parents uh, bought me a used refrigerator side by side, stuck it in my dorm room, bought me the biggest toaster, biggest uh, toaster oven they could find, brought me bags of groceries up because I was used to eating two meals dinners. I would eat a dinner at six, and then I would eat another dinner at eleven o'clock at night. And because I wasn't getting my two dinners. I was losing all this weight, and they were worried about me. So next thing you know, I mean, I'm I'm like grilling steaks at eleven o'clock at night. You know, not only was I gaining weight, I was getting my laundry done, I was getting my room clean. I mean, my buddies loved me because I had steaks. You know, and they were eating like Kraft macaroni and cheese. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. cooking has so many positive aspects to it. You can make friends. I mean, it makes up for an incredible lack of personality for me sometimes. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know. Dating. I mean, it's great oh. for dating. 
dating? Are you kidding? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Women that find a guy that could cook? Yep. You know, I mean, I, I, I just knew up in Ann Arbor that it was highly unlikely I was going to find a lady that could cook like my mother. I mean, I just, <laughs> I just, just didn't see it happening. You know what I mean? So I cooked, you know, and then, and, and I've been cooking all my life. And, and literally it, it, it's, uh, I mean, I started cooking probably when I was in seventh grade, sixth grade, and my mom was an incredible cook. And, um, you know, I started making lasagna and pizzas and whatnot. And I cooked, uh, I lived with four guys in college and, and we all would chip in 25 bucks and four or five nights a week. I'd cook. Nice. Which is really what it takes. It Mm -hmm. takes practice. You know what I mean? It takes practice. And, uh, when I got out of school, I just kept following it. Um, started taking classes from master chefs in my twenties, chef Milos. I took many classes from at Janos, uh, um, Brian Polson. Um, yeah. so even though, and you know, the, the neat thing about my career is that in manufacturing is that I did some mergers and acquisitions work and I had a chance to travel to Europe and to Asia and I would go out to dinners with people that owned other companies, you know? And they would, and they knew I liked food, and I always treated them when they came to the United States. So they would take me to the most fantastic places mm-hmm. wherever I was, whether it was in Hiroshima or whether it was Paris or whatever. They would take me to their favorite restaurants, and I got to have, you know, that's really why we're going to be doing souffles downstairs, is because I ate at Louis the Thirteenth in the basement in Paris one time, and this dude made a a chicken souffle. It was unmolded, served it with a piece of foie gras, a piece of chicken tenderloin, and this chicken glass i'll never forget the meal mm-hmm. i'll never forget the meal you know what i mean but when you had that opportunity to try and taste these things it's just fun it just feeds that passion and uh you know i mean my, my wife always gets about it because when we were first going out i called her up one day honey i'm so excited there's chicken on sale for 29 cents at hollywood market this week <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she tells the story of this day. You know, she knew she married kind of a weird guy <laughs> you know what I mean? but it's just kind of what makes me tick and and um eh, you know i mean it's my life i mean i love it very much and uh, i'm really fortunate to be in the industry because i get to play all the time yeah i mean i really do i get to find great products and you know, finding great products is what it's all about because, you know, if you have great products, you really don't have to do a tr- tremendous amount. You know, it's like the essence of Italian and, and really Mexican cooking. You know, they don't they don't apply really uh, sophisticated techniques like the French do. They just take great ingredients and they apply basic good technique to it and they have great food. You know what I mean? Key is to get that great ingredient. You know, mm-hmm. that's what the whole farm to table thing is really, you know, just getting your hands on great ingredients. So to this day, I mean, I just pursue, pursue, pursue ingredients and, 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 you know, we fly in fresh fish every week for, for, for Mr. B's who would know that we fly in fresh fish every week. Right. You know? Yeah. And some of it's selfish because it keeps me on a good diet. <laughs> but some of it's probably shellfish. <laughs> oh no! Some of it's, no! Some, some, some I waited a long time no, for a joke. You did. You did. Some, some, of it, some of it is shellfish. <laughs> I'm talking so much. I'm probably losing a little bit of a fizz in my drink. <laughs> um. So the the kind of shift going back to the shift that happened four years ago, the menu. Um, obviously wasn't using the ingredients that you're using now. What, right. what, what, and did you take the business over and kind of function that way with like the, with, with like this end goal in mind of, of using fresh ingredients? And if so, like how has the cost structure changed for you? Well, I'll tell you, um, uh, it was interesting because when I started the, uh, uh, when I started off, the first thing I did was take what they made and just started improving the ingredients and the techniques because I knew that I could only change this at a certain pace. I so could, when, you when, know, when you took over, you got the recipes and all that – like all of it was included in the, in the purchase of the restaurant? No, I did all no. the recipes myself. But I could – I mean – I know. mean you had access to them. I'm not saying like you – like the old well, recipe. I know. mean there isn't much of a recipe to a slot. Okay, server. okay. I'm just saying. I mean, there's there there were very few recipes. I think the uh, spinach dip was a recipe that they were pretty well known for. Okay, um, they had some cockamamie recipes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they put mayonnaise in their guacamole, and I'm sorry. I'm, what, just, I'm what? just I'm just sorry. They put what? mayonnaise to extend it to like get more out of it. 
I don't have any idea. Why I mean, you put yeah, mayonnaise and guacamole. I mean, I'm sorry. That, I mean, I don't mean to be rude about it, but I mean, I mean, I lived in Mexico for a little while, and I'm very, I'm very true to my authenticism. Okay, <laughs> but I never saw any mayonnaise going into no. <laughs> into guacamole. That's wacky. You know yeah. what I mean? But anyway, maybe but, sour but, cream. But, maybe sour cream. <laughs> well, not sour saying cream, that's official no, either. Well, no, restaurants will do that. Okay, I mean that's a good extender. You know, because it's got some natural acid to it. But, but dang. Uh, but not mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, um, yeah. But I, I I started by just trying to improve the quality of the meat, trying to improve the quality of the bread. You know, we stopped. Um, we don't buy any cold cuts. We don't buy. I mean, we roast all our own meats. You know, and you know, actually, I got a little overboard. I mean, you know, I mean, I challenged the kitchen. I mean, we've made our own pastrami. We've made our own bacon, and we used a couple hundred pounds of bacon a week. Um, we even made our own masa and made our corn, own corn tortillas to wow. order for a while. And nobody does that. And nobody so does that. Did you have like Gordon Food Service knocking on your door like, dude, we've been supplying you for years. What what gives? Well, it's interesting because I still buy food from people. But what they really realize about me is don't bring me your recipes and don't bring me your pre-processed stuff. All I want to see is your natural ingredients. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, you can buy – you can buy good quality meat. I mean, there's only so many meat packers in the United States of America. And if you're buying a certain grade of USDA choice uh, meat, it's the same from Cisco as it is from Gordon's. It is from any place that get all get it from the same place. Now, I mean, if you're looking for uh, grass fed beef, I mean, they even start carrying those because, you know, those companies aren't stupid. They know there are chefs out there that want premium products. Mm-hmm. So they go out and try to create premium products. Sure. But, you know, you also go through this rationalization of a product. Um, and a good example is this. Salmon. People come in and ask, is your salmon farm raised, right? And I say, yeah, it is. Um, and then they, you know, think, oh, well, I don't want to eat farm-raised salmon, right? And I'm saying, well, you might not want to eat farm-raised salmon, but if you want to eat, um, you know, wild salmon, you're going to pay 18 to $28 a pound. I'm going to be charging you $25 to $35 a plate, and half the people that eat Mr. Beast can't afford that. So, you know, I don't think that poor people shouldn't have the right to eat salmon. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. Salmon's really good for you, whether it's farm-raised or not. So are, are all farm-raised the same then? Maybe that's the next question. Well, you know, I mean, once again, the, 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 the farm-raised people aren't stupid either. I mean, they know what the consumer demands want. And if you look at Canadian farm salmon, you know, like from the Bay of Fundy, which a lot of salmon comes from the Bay of Fundy, that's really pristine water, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they don't, they fish one area for two years then they mix the area for two years. I mean, they don't, they realize there's people putting them under a microscope. So, I mean, you know, we predominantly buy Bay of Fundy salmon or we try to find salmon, you know, that's good quality salmon. Um, but, you know, I need to sell my salmon for $18 a plate. I can't sell it for $28 a sure. plate, you know, and, and I want to provide my good. So you go through this rationalization. I mean, you just kind of brought up the whole concept of using Cisco and Gordon's and you really do. I mean, you know, when you're serving 10,000 customers a month, which we do, um, you can't use all Michigan product. Right. Growing season isn't long enough here. Mm-hmm. Suppliers don't make enough product to serve restaurants like that, you know, so you, you just have to, you know, you really have to, you really have to think a lot when you prepare food for a menu like Mr. B's. So speaking of food, you brought five plates over here. Yeah. That we haven't even looked at yet because it's behind Joe. <laughs> That's a mistake, man. <laughs> that is a mistake. You know what? My stomach is like mad at you now. <laughs> so what, what, did you, what did you bring here? Well, you know, okay. So we brought our steak bites and uh, we used tenderloin tips. And the sauce we make for that, I've been making for years. It's a very simple sauce. It's a caramelized onion Dijon cream. And that's about all that's in it, really. I mean, you're, you have to do a good job caramelizing your onions. Uh, you got to pincé them, which is kind of a fancy cooking term, but you basically uh, brown them in some Dijon mustard, and you reduce some cream into it. And uh, it becomes a really delicious sauce for our steak bites. Um, I use that sauce for a lot of things. It's really good with pork. Actually, that was the first one I came up with. I used it on pork. Then um, we uh, uh, have our version of a caprese salad. Um, we use basil pesto instead of fresh basil um, because I like the additional flavor of the Parmesan cheese and the garlic in it. We use burrata cheese, which is nice uh, spreadable cheese. Mm-hmm. And I've got some uh, rosemary lemon bread from Crispelli's on there. Um, and I use um, uh, extra virgin olive oil, sea salt, and I use a, a, a Tuscan olive. Uh, it's actually a Tuscan olive oil, and I use uh, aged balsamic vinegar. 
So I kind of like to say, hey, that's a kicked up caprese salad. Um, we bred our own coconut shrimp there. You know, uh, I did some research because I do not like too much breading on my coconut shrimp. I think too many coconut shrimps have too much breading on them. I do. I just do. That's because they butterfly them and the ratio of breading to meat becomes like more bread than meat. So I figured out that the biggest shrimp you can cook is a 21 to 25 count shrimp, not butterfly it, still put real breadcrumbs on it, hand bread them, and you can get a cooked through shrimp without burning your breadcrumbs. Wow. That is the magic of that whole gig. And we, uh, we serve like an apricot, uh, plum, uh, pineapple, and horseradish sauce with that, um, which is our own house sauce. Then I've got uh, one of my favorite pizzas, which is our meat lover's pizza, um, which we have our own homemade Italian sausage on. Uh, we have Dearborn uh, um, uh, ham on there. Uh, we've got uh, spicy pepperoni on there. Um, we make our own pizza dough. Uh, it's a little bit more tender than a lot of pizza doughs because we had extra virgin olive oil, we add uh, honey, and we add milk solids, which will make a dough a little more tender than a tip, you know than a chewier uh, you know flatbread dough. Um, I've got our uh, mile high corned beef sandwich. We exclusively use Wiggly's corned beef, which I love, which is an I- which, Eastern Market. Yep, yep. It's an Irish corned beef. You know, the difference between an Irish and a Jewish corned beef is a Jewish corned beef is a garlic corned beef, and an Irish corned beef has been brined and pickling spices and all that. And it's funny because most people take a Jewish corned beef and they cook them with the pickling spices, right? Right. Well, an Irish corned beef already has all that flavor in it, and I I really love Wiggly's corned beef. And we have 12 ounces of uh, thin-sliced Wiggly's corned beef on that sandwich, and we have a a rye from Crispelli's Bakery on there. Um, That's that's a pretty – you're not going to find many delis that have any better sandwich. Than that corned beef sandwich right there. Um, so I just thought I'd bring a little bit because I was, you know, it's dinner time, guys. Right. I mean, you know, far, <laughs> far be it from you to miss a meal. <laughs> you know? so, so let let me ask you about like so the, the obviously there's a lot of uh, not not to use prep work, I was, no yeah. pun intended um, here, but. Um, what was the effect on the kitchen shifting from the, the way it was to the way it is now? Okay, so here's the gig. This is the funny thing. Okay, so I walk into Mr. B's and I'm buying the company and I do my due diligence. So I come and I walk in all the time. And I go there when it's busy and I go there when it's not busy. When it's not busy, all the guys in the kitchen are sitting outside watching TV. They're watching sports, you know? And they do it a lot because there's a lot of TVs. In the main area? Just yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, all day long. I mean, it's when, you know, three to four o'clock, four to five o'clock when there's nobody, you know, not many people in there. Wow. I mean, you got five cooks in there and they're all just like, you know, Hanging around watching sports, shooting the junk, right? And I'm like, and everybody's like, oh, you, you, you know, all my suppliers, oh, you can't afford to cook from scratch. You can't afford the labor. You can't afford the labor. I go, what do you mean, man? I got labor sitting around here all over the place. I got, I got unused labor, baby. See, I was in the manufacturing business, so I'm like a big productivity guy. <laughs> and I'm like, I got freebie labor watching sports all day long, you know? So um, it really, that's a false, that's a false thing. Do you have Six Sigma it, it, certification? Permit Six Sigma certification. I do not yet. Okay. I do not yet. I want that James Beard Award first. <laughs> <laughs> what is that certification? Oh, that's an automotive uh-huh. quality specification. <laughs> uh-huh. Started out of General Electric a long time ago. I guess it's broader than that. I guess it, it's, it's, it's... But it's productivity and like workplace, like um, making sure that you're not like uh, wasting labor and things like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of an evolution of the Toyota production system really, but um, – yeah, you know, I mean, but it's true. I mean, you know, you got to keep, you know, you got to keep people busy. That's all. That's what I tell these guys. Look, you work in a kitchen, cook. You can talk, you can joke, but keep your hands busy and cook. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and I put a, you know, I put more qualified people in the kitchen. I mean, it, my salary, my it's kind of funny because my overall cost of labor has gone down, but my average salary has gone up significantly. Wow. And, and that's and that's and that's a good thing. Yeah. And and I hire pretty much um, all full time people. I don't hire part time people. I give them forty hours a week as close as I can. Sometimes overtime, and I give them a consistent schedule, so they know what their schedule is every week. That helps keep people around mm-hmm. a lot. And I find the people that work in the kitchen really enjoy learning. And I'm that guy that likes to talk. You know, I mean, if like a great example is my sous chef, Julio. I mean, Julio was the uh, uh, kitchen manager at Monterey's for 17 years. Mexican gentleman knows how to cook Mexican food really well. That's all he cooked for 17 years. Came to my business. He was kind of intimidated because he never cooked anything but Mexican food. Julio can make strudel. Julio can make creme brulees. Julio can make pastrami. 
Julio can make bacon from scratch. Julio can make some masa. Who's Julio? <laughs> <laughs> I showed him a technique for making masa, though. Right. Nice. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I make masa with canned hominy. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You dry it out and you grind it. And, you, and, and the beauty of it is you can season it. Sure. Um, but I won't get Plus, it has a shelf life, too, then. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, I mean, but what I what I find is that, like, if you educate people and you get them, I mean, like I said, I, I love trying things. You know, it's just like that chartreuse jelly. I mean, I was really interested in that chartreuse jelly. You know, I, mean, I really thought about that chartreuse jelly. I wasn't going to make green chartreuse jelly because I did not like green chartreuse. But, you know, and you know I tomorrow is. And, and it's time for the wedding. It's tomorrow's <laughs> National Chartreuse Day. No, is it really? Yeah. I didn't know that. The wedding's Saturday. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I still time, have some chartreuse. To <laughs> Tomorrow, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put some chartreuse jelly on special. Yep. The yellow is much more approachable than the green. And the yellow is often called American chartreuse, too. Is it? Yep. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Red, white, and blue. Tune into Nick's video tomorrow and you can learn more. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But, uh, but you know, we do. We, we, you know, we, we play with all kinds of things. I mean, these people at Mr. B's have eaten food they've never eaten in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's part of it, too. You know, I mean, part of it, you know, you talk about staff training. I mean, really, if people, you know, 90% of what they go out and order is hamburgers and quesadillas and they're trying to sell a, you know, a, a duck confit turkey leg or a turkey, you know, or, or we used to do a confit turkey leg. Yeah. Um, you know, they've never had that. Right. You know? I mean, my manager, she's been there 25 years. She had never eaten duck. She had never eaten lamb. You know, so it's part, it's an education process. But it, what, a, what a great thing. I mean, you're expanding horizons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're seeing the world. I mean, food is a representation of, 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 of culture all over the world. Were you cooking the turkey legs and turkey fat? No, I was cooking them in olive oil. Okay. Just like, does anyone sell turkey fat like by the quantity? That, that would be an expensive right. way to cook. Because I've seen duck fat. Yeah. I mean, duck fat, at least ducks are kind of fatty. But ducks, yeah. duck fat's expensive too. Uh, totally. Well, yeah, a yeah, duck yeah. has enough fat on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you take the skin off a duck that you're not going to use in the confit and you boil it down, that's how you really do it to okay. get the fat out of it. And okay. then you reduce out all the water. You can get enough fat out of a good duck to, to confit a duck. But, but I've never seen turkey fat. But uh, a turkey, actually, a turkey confit uh, is a leg is really good. I bet. It's really good. I Put that, a, take that to a Ren fair. You know, actually, the first time I saw that was at the Purple Pig in Chicago. Was it? And the Purple Pig is a great restaurant. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, you would think that, okay, it's Purple Pig. What are you seeing a turkey leg for? But well, so many people are ordering these turkey legs. And it's a really nice piece of meat. You know what I'm uh-huh. saying? So I'm saying, I'm going to try that, baby. <laughs> you know? Brought it to Mr. Beast for a while. So, Johnny, where can people, uh, where can people find Mr. Beast? 215 South Main Street in Royal Oak. It's just south of uh, 11 Mile. On the east side of the road, and uh, it's not too hard to find. And then uh, your your hours? We are open um, every day but Monday. We're open Tuesday through Sunday from 1130 in the morning till 2 in the morning, except you, Sunday we're 12 to 12. Do you serve food all, throughout the night? Um, we close the kitchen during the week depending on the night, either 10 or 11 o'clock, okay, depending late. on how busy yeah. people are. And on Saturday, Friday and Saturdays, we're open until 1 in the morning. And then Johnny's opens. What's the projected open for? We're going to open in June. I'm going to will that to happen. Okay. You know, it's I, written. It's already in the press release. It's already <laughs> in the press release. So I'm going to will that to happen. And I'm going to pray for some cooperation from the building people. In the <laughs> <laughs> All right, Johnny, best of luck. Thanks for being with us. Oh, it's so much fun. You guys are a riot. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having me, man. Until next time, dine well, friends.